Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Forestine, back from a very long but restful vacation. <laughs> and I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, September 2nd, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes is finally headed to trial. We discuss the case and why it might not be an open and shut conviction for prosecutors. This week, two senior vaccine regulators at the FDA said they plan to retire this fall, a time when the agency has a lot on its plate when it comes to COVID vaccines. Stats' Nicholas Florco joins us to discuss. We'll start with a look at the latest news around the life sciences, but first, a word from our sponsor. My name is Maria. My name is Danielle, and Maria and I are the new hosts of Genentech's award-winning podcast, Two Scientists Walk Into a Bar. It's a show for scientists, science geeks, and the people who love them. Aww. So Maria, true story, is from the UK. She's into clinical data, transcription factors, and long runs on the beach. That's right. And Danielle is from Texas. She loves translational medicine, woodworking, and getting up close and personal with cancer cells. And when we're not botching each other's accents, you can usually find us chatting up other scientists about all kinds of cutting edge research. So grab a drink and check us out wherever you get your favorite podcasts or find us at gene.com slash podcast. That's G-E-N-E dot -E com slash podcast. Well, we can't start this podcast without welcoming back our friend, Adam. Adam, you were out for a month. We missed you so much. I know. I almost forgot how to podcast. <laughs> yeah. I had to like think about it for a second. You're right back into the swing of things. You haven't missed a beat. And you also came back right in time for pumpkin spice season. Oh, totally. Like I was telling you, I was in the supermarket and I saw pumpkin spice paper towel embossed with pumpkins and spice. So I, I know how much you love this time of year, Meg. I really do. And I really want to find those paper <laughs> towels. <laughs> it, it is good to be back. And, and uh, the vacation was nice and restful, but I'm happy to be podcasting once again. It feels like you've been on a vision quest and now you're coming down from the mountain. And so I'm expecting <laughs> like particular profundity from you. Yeah, I am no wiser. Uh, maybe a little bit more rested and less stressed out, but no wiser. So while you were on vacation, like, did any industry news like break through to you? Is there any biotech news that like affected you in vacation land that you just couldn't get wait to get back to talk about? Or were you really able to like peace out? You, you know, I was really able to get out and like get away and just unplug. I read four books, which I, I never read books. I read some trashy crime novels and thrillers. <laughs> but I have to say that I did like, for instance, read uh, Damien's excellent story on Sess and Bio and that crazy, you know, trial misconduct and the side effects that popped up there. You know, and then I know you guys last week discussed the cassava scientist stuff and the allegations against that company with respect to the research that they've published on their Alzheimer's drug. And I have to say, I don't want to sound too like doom and gloom here, but like, are we starting to see evidence mounting of a lot of sloppiness going, getting into biotech and maybe these companies sloshing around with so much capital cash and they're taking shortcuts that they shouldn't be taking? Um, you know, maybe that's uh, something we'll be discussing on future episodes of the podcast. So two topics for this podcast, we got some news this week from both Pfizer and Merck about their plans to develop antiviral treatments for COVID-19. Meg, what happened? 
Yeah, so we're actually expecting the first results on these antiviral pills um, as soon as October from Merck. This is the compound that they in license from Ridgeback Bio. They're repurposing this antiviral drug, hoping that it works in COVID. Uh, we should get results on Pfizer's antiviral, which it developed for the coronavirus um, by the end of the year. They say they're planning an EUA application sometime in the fourth quarter. What they announced this week was two new studies. Pfizer is going to start a late stage trial looking at its antiviral in people just diagnosed with COVID with symptoms who are not at high risk of severe disease. And in some ways, like this is kind of an exciting study because that's sort of like every like everyone. I mean, most of the studies we've seen so far are in people who are at high risk of severe disease or going to the hospital because of uh, because of having COVID. Um, but really, people have talked about these drugs as like a Tamiflu. You know, the second you get sick, you try to get this and take it really, really early. And so actually seeing that it could have an effect in people who aren't in these high risk categories, you know, would be huge. But I think the Merck drug had been tested in that setting, but they ended up just narrowing it down to people who are at high risk. So it could be a difficult space to prove benefit. And then Merck actually announced a new trial in the prevention setting, sort of post-exposure. So if you live with somebody with COVID uh, and you have not yet been diagnosed yourself, this is what that study is looking to do to see if they can prevent you from getting sick. And we actually saw that with the antibody drugs. The Regeneron drug um, has data showing that it can help prevent uh, uh, infection or at least a disease um, in people who live with somebody uh, with COVID. So, Meg, you know, you mentioned the Tamiflu um, analogy and, and, you know, that's, I mean, wouldn't that be the ideal situation where, you know, you, somebody that you live with is, gets infected with coronavirus and, you know, you as the person who lives with that, you know, was not yet infected, but is able to take some kind of antiviral and then, you know, either, you know, prevent infection or like prevent any symptoms from from disease. I mean, that would be an ideal situation for an antiviral. Right. And in the ideal sense, you know, we, we already have these antibodies, Meg, as you mentioned, that are very effective in these settings, but they require an infusion. And so the dream for a lot of people is that, you know, this would be a packet of pills that you could conceivably even get in the mail. Uh, when you were in that situation, either exposed um, or recently diagnosed. But the the tough thing, ha having talked to a few people who know a lot about antivirals, there's the incredibly difficult process of just developing new antivirals. But then there are specific difficulties that come with COVID-19, which, as we know, by the time people are showing symptoms, which is quite often when people choose to get tested, they've already they might be days removed from actually contracting the virus. So, you know, Meg, as you described those different trial designs that companies are pushing forward, they're kind of trying to thread the needle to see a benefit from these pills, which may work very well, but you have the challenge of not only which patients do you give them to, but when in the process of having this virus, are you reaching those patients and are you giving them these pills? Yeah, I'd just be curious to know what what likelihood, what probability of success you guys put on these? And do you give one a higher likelihood than the other? Like, how likely is it we're going to get an antiviral for COVID in the near term? That's tough. I mean, having, again, I don't have any particular insight, but having spoken to a few scientists about this, I feel like they were more optimistic about the Pfizer pill, which, as you mentioned, was designed to target SARS-CoV-2 specifically versus the Merck one and some others we've seen which are repurposed and, and theoretically should have some activity against this virus, but also other viruses as well. But then you have, you know, as I mentioned before, the difficulties of running a trial that can show the benefit. It's possible that all of these drugs 
work in some way, but you have to actually get the data that demonstrates that, which is the art and science of clinical trial design. So as to the likelihood, I really don't know. I mean, I guess I'm crossing my fingers. I am not a virologist, but... (laughs) (laughs) You didn't get a PhD in virology during your month off? Damn, I should have. I know, you know, but but I think of I think of uh, hepatitis C, you know, which is a virus that we that we I say collectively we the royal we um, know very much about has been very well studied and for years and years and years was a, a, a virus that you know really couldn't be targeted directly with antivirals. It took decades of research and time before direct acting antivirals were developed successfully for hepatitis C, and 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 those drugs are. Are wonderful and they work and they're truly effective, and uh, have proven to be a great benefit for patients. So you know, again, maybe this is just a question of time. I mean, if you think about it, they really haven't been doing a lot of this research on SARS-CoV-2 antivirals for very long. So you know, maybe it will take a decade before that happens. So speaking of the COVID-19 pandemic, but separate from treatments for COVID-19 itself, Meg, you got some really interesting data about prescription trends before, during, and after the pandemic, and how basically what we've lived through over the past 18 months changed the way people get their medicine. Yeah. So uh, this is data from GoodRx, which examines prescription trends, look at looks at prices of drugs, and also has all those coupons, you know, the those commercials where you can get coupons for drugs that make them less expensive in terms of the copays. Um, but they provided us some data that really show, I think, human behavior during the pandemic. I mean, there is so much that you can tell about a society and kind of what it's going through by the drugs it takes, <laughs> if you really think about it. And one of the things that GoodRx found is that the kinds of drugs that you need a doctor's visit to get a refill for, they call them low refill drugs, um, you can kind of gauge when people started going back to the doctor's office for that routine care. You would think that, you know, for, for medicines that you need to take, you wouldn't have put that off during the pandemic, but they actually saw that those prescription fills went down in 2020. And they really only started to recover in a major way in February of this year. And they were kind of ticking up toward the summer as vaccines rolled out more broadly. They used Truvada as an example um, of one of these drugs that doesn't have authorized refills. And so, you know, we've kind of been seeing that in some of the data and the the report, the the financial reports from the companies. Um, On a more lighthearted note, one huge trend that they identified is that drugs for beauty um, and lifestyle are way up. Um, I mean, this is off a really low base, but Latisse, the eyelash growth drug and its generics are like way up, like last fall and into the spring of this year. And I actually talked to an esthetician about this. And she was saying because everybody has to wear masks, they really want to make their eyes pop because it's the only thing that you can (laughs) see. So I thought that was really interesting. And then on a kind of sad note and perhaps unsurprising, antidepressant prescriptions are also up. Um, They looked at sertraline, the generics of um, Zoloft, and they found they're up about 8% compared with before the pandemic. And we talked with the CEO of the American Psychiatric Association about this. And she was just pointing out it's especially the financial stresses of the pandemic that have really led to these upticks in diagnoses with depression and anxiety. And so that's not surprising, but it, you know, sad to see it reflected in the data. I mean, it really is a portrait of America over the last, over, you know, over, yeah. a portrait of America over the pandemic. It really is. And everybody's getting great lashes. <laughs> <laughs> After two delays, 
two documentaries and countless hours of narrative podcasting, former Theranos CEO Elizabeth Holmes is finally headed to trial this month. Jury selection started this week and opening statements are expected after Labor Day. Holmes faces a dozen counts of conspiracy and fraud, accused of lying to investors and patients about whether Theranos' blood testing machines lived up to the hype. And while Holmes has long since been tried in the court of public opinion, that doesn't mean prosecutors will have an easy time convincing a jury that she is guilty. Uh, Damien, you talked to some legal experts about the case. How did they expect things to play out? I did, and I, I was kind of surprised by how conservative they were about you know, the, the prosecutor's odds, the government's odds in, in making these charges stick. Because what's interesting about this case is there's no, there's really no dispute about whether what Elizabeth Holmes said about Theranos and its machines was true. I mean, there's just overwhelming evidence uh, as anyone who's, I don't know, probably just lived or anyone who listens to this podcast is probably very familiar with the Theranos case. They said they could do things that they very much dramatically could not do. So what it really hangs on is whether they can establish that she intended to defraud people when she said these demonstrably false things. And that can be more complicated than you might think. I mean, as one person put it to me, in, in a lot of criminal trials, you know, if it's a, a violent crime, you have to just establish who pulled the trigger. Here, you have to establish what was going on in someone's head when they did the thing. And that can be very difficult. And the, people have seen, or people cited, you know, cases that seemed kind of open and shut in a public sense, but where, you know, the prosecutors struggled to actually make it stick to a jury. One of the things I think I find so fascinating about watching all of this is just the sort of analysis of the the sort of magic that Elizabeth Holmes seems to possess in terms of I mean just think about what she accomplished. I mean, yes, like it, it appears to be a, a massive fraud, but she convinced these incredibly sophisticated rich people and like former secretaries of state, Rupert Murdoch, I mean, and like also companies that do healthcare. She convinced these people to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in Theranos. She she just like I am just fascinated in watching it. And uh CNBC's producer Yasmin Korem, who's been in the courthouse, was reporting yesterday that Every single juror that walked in, Elizabeth Holmes would turn around and try to make eye contact with them. And I'm just really curious, Damien, to know, like, what do the legal experts you've talked with expect will be the sort of reaction to Holmes herself and the idea that she's pregnant or she she had a baby, um, you know, John Kerry Rue's podcast about this has speculated that he cites multiple legal experts who say that was no accident. She planned this <laughs> oh, pregnancy God. in order to get sympathy <laughs> from a jury. I mean, this is just that that, it, that never occurred to me. And everybody admits and it's an incredibly cynical take. But also a lot of people quoted in Kerry Rue's podcast don't put it past her. I don't know, Damien, what do people say about just the sort of persona of Elizabeth Holmes and how that'll play in here? So, yeah, I heard some some theorizing about uh, her maternity as well. Uh, I spoke with an academic named Mary Dodge um, in Colorado, who specifically has spent her career studying women in white collar crime. And she cited studies about, you know, mothers are better suited at, at uh, doing well in court when it comes to, you know, either lower sentences or actually being found not guilty um, than women who do not have children. So, I mean, that just sort of is what it is. But as to the sort of the, the Holmesian magic, I think the interest is in basically whether she will testify. For quite a while, uh, people assumed that she would not. Defendants rarely do in criminal trials because the, the risk reward 
ratio is really skewed. It can really go awry if you put uh, your defendant on the stand. But as we've seen from some documents uh, that were unsealed last weekend, thanks to a lawsuit from the Wall Street Journal, her defense has prepared what is somewhat uncomfortably known as the mental defect defense, where they could argue that, yes, she said these things, and yes, they were false, but that she could not have formulated intent to defraud because she was under mental strain because of, as she's alleged, abuse by her uh, former number two at Theranos and former romantic partner, Sonny Balwani, who we should note has denied this and who does not face trial on charges of his own until next year and thus will not be there to defend himself. But that too is a high risk, high reward strategy because again, it would probably require her to testify to these things and to make the case that her mental state was you know, such that she either really believed what she was saying or she deferred to Balwani or she was deluded in some way. But the risk there is that that allows the prosecutors to contrast this testimony with the hours of footage we've seen of her working that magic on various stages at various conferences. And I, I think a lot of people have doubt that a jury would really go for that, that, that they could really um, you know, buy this notion that, that she wasn't able to really understand what was happening when there's all this evidence to the contrary. But I think that really remains the, the key thing that we're yet to find out, which is whether she'll testify, because that's when the sort of cult of personality of Elizabeth Holmes could actually come to bear on this trial rather than just being a lot of discussions about microfluidics and, you know, machine diagnostic tests and things that are maybe a little less interesting than than something like that. And Damien, this trial is being held in Silicon Valley. So presumably the jury pool and, and the people who will ultimately decide the fate of, of Elizabeth Holmes, you know, come from Silicon Valley. What impact do you think that will have on the trial? Well, that's been fascinating just these past two days of jury selection. You know, based on reporting for people who are who are there, a large number of jurors have at least some exposure to the Theranos story, whether they saw one of the movies, some had read Bad Blood, John Carreyrou's book about it, um, or just, you know, knew about it from the news. And the judge, at least, doesn't seem to be taking exposure to the story as reason enough for disqualification. It's, you know, you have to have some something that would bias you or make you incapable of, of giving Elizabeth Holmes a fair hearing. I wonder if they're asking the jurors if they own a Tesla. <laughs> that might be, yeah, that might be disqualifying for, for other reasons, really. But um, what's been interesting is there, there was a really good story from Bloomberg earlier this week, citing legal experts saying that, you know, the ideal jury for Holmes attorneys might be one that is pretty well steeped in Silicon Valley because they might be receptive to an argument that Theranos is just yet another big dreaming startup that failed. Happens all the time. Rather than Theranos is the fraud of the century, which is kind of what the prosecutors will be pushing. But that could be a double-edged sword as well, because again, if you are really steeped in Silicon Valley, you are quite likely to know the Theranos story. And if you're exposed to the Theranos story, which you know most tellings of it that I've seen have not been overwhelmingly sympathetic to Elizabeth Holmes, you might not have a terribly high opinion of her, and thus you might be that much more likely to convict. So the jury selection is going to be a delicate balance. And as you mentioned, I mean, that will really determine how this trial goes, in addition, obviously, to the evidence and the arguments. But, you know, the, the people, the, the mindset of the people sitting in that jury box will be deeply important. So we're all like super interested in this because we we followed the Theranos story and there's also just like these incredibly interesting threads and there's all these podcasts and, you know, it's almost like 
an, an entertainment trial in some ways, although the issues are very serious. I'm wondering, Damien, like, it, are, are there consequences of how this trial turns out to, you know, the, the health tech industry, to Silicon Valley and its culture? Or does this matter, I guess? I think it does. I mean, like, as you mentioned, I'm, I'm way too in the tank to have like an unbiased opinion about this. But and I have seen people on Twitter, especially saying, essentially, can you all please stop paying attention to this woman? I'm tired of this. It doesn't matter. But I think it does in a multitude of ways. I mean, one, there was a really good New York Times story about how uh, women founders in Silicon Valley feel like they're kind of haunted by the homesiness of it all and that they struggle to make the case and be taken seriously to investors when it comes to that. And then there was kind of an interesting kind of not counter narrative, but separate story in the Wall Street Journal about companies that do Theranosi type things in terms of diagnostics, who said that they're not even really asked about it at all. Like investors have moved on from the skepticism of this kind of technology based on Theranos. So I think this trial, having airing it all out and getting some finality to this, I think it is important for both of those constituencies. And then, you know, sort of the macro level beyond even Silicon Valley, John Kerry pointed this out. He he argued that this trial has important implications for how we treat fraud in this country. If Holmes attorneys are able to prevail, if some of these defenses like, oh, she was just engaging in puffery, or this is just how startups act, or et cetera, all of that stuff, it wouldn't necessarily set, you know, like a Supreme Court precedent, but it would arguably be not good for the people who advocate for stricter uh, prosecution of white collar crime. So I do think there is an importance here. And granted, you know, the call is coming from inside the house here. I, I am personally invested in, in in all of this stuff. But but I don't think this is just kind of a sideshow. I do think that there are like societal implications to this trial. I know some people are probably rolling their eyes, but I feel like we will be discussing Elizabeth Holmes and this trial in upcoming podcasts. And Adam is just happy because it's something other than COVID. <laughs> Hell Yeah. Two officials in charge of leading the FDA's review of coronavirus vaccine applications are leaving the agency this fall. These are high-profile departures by two long-serving scientists who oversee the FDA's regulation of vaccines, and they come as the agency has now gone eight months without a permanent commissioner. Yeah, and in another sign of tumult uh, within the FDA, there are reports that their decision to leave the agency was made in part because of disagreements with the White House's recent announcement that adults should start receiving coronavirus booster vaccinations later this month, or at least the way this decision was handled. Joining us to discuss the situation is Stat DC correspondent Nicholas Florco. Nick, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So, Nick, maybe just start off by explaining like who these folks are and how important their roles are at FDA. Sure thing. So their names are Marion Gruber and, and Phil Krauss, and they're important because they're the people in charge, essentially, of reviewing vaccines at the FDA, quite literally. So Dr. Gruber has been the director of FDA's Office of Vaccine Research and Review, the office that reviews vaccine applications since 2011. Dr. Krauss has been the deputy of that office since 2010. And combined, the two have more than 40 years of experience at the FDA, and they were both, of course, were intimately involved in reviewing the applications for coronavirus vaccines. So these are about as central people as you could possibly imagine when we're talking about review of vaccines at the FDA. And Nick, what do we know about the reasons for their leaving the FDA? Well, I should say first that neither of them have said anything publicly. So I hesitate to say definitively why they're leaving. 
Um, and the FDA, I should say, is framing both of these departures as retirements, not resignations. And they can arguably say that with a straight face. Like I said, Dr. Gruber has been at the FDA for, for 32 years. But we also know, of course, that the FDA's vaccine center has been working nonstop for more than a year now, and, and they've felt enormous pressure to go faster and faster and faster. And some of that pressure has fallen directly on Dr. Gruber and Dr. Krauss. I mean, we've reported in June, for example, that the FDA was planning this sprint to finish the Pfizer application. And that meant that Dr. Marks, the head of the FDA's biologic center, both of Dr. Gruber and Dr. Krauss's boss, was essentially taking over management of the Pfizer application from Dr. Gruber. So you can imagine that that sort of pressure takes toll. And quite frankly, the pressure just isn't letting up. I mean, the FDA is just facing enormous pressure right now, not only for boosters, but also to finish their view of applications for vaccines in kids. So you can imagine that everyone is is really, really tired. And of course, that likely has a role in this resignation or these two resignations. Well, yeah, it's been interesting from the point of that sprint, which you mentioned and which you reported, it does feel like there has been a consistent sense that the White House has been kind of getting ahead of the FDA um, in a way that maybe we're not necessarily used to seeing or in a way that might be contrary to uh, some of the promises that candidate Biden made before becoming President Biden. Does this feel like, you know, this is potentially evidence of, of that leading to some strain among sort of the long term career folks who really make the FDA work? Yeah, I mean, it's totally possible. As you all already mentioned, there's already been speculation um, that these resignations were caused largely because of the booster situation. Uh, and just to step back for a second, I mean, the booster situation is is pretty crazy, to be honest. I mean, the Biden administration had promised boosters will be available on September 20th. I mean, that's in le- then just over two weeks. And the FDA still hasn't finished reviewing the data. I mean, Moderna just announced it had finished submitting its booster application, I mean, roughly 12 hours before we started recording this podcast. So this is one of the clearest examples thus far of the Biden administration really putting political pressure on the FDA and potentially getting ahead of the science. I think Moderna has actually not even finished that submission. I think it only started the submission. And so this is like a lot that's going to have to happen before September 20th. But to your point about the order of operations here with the White House announcing this booster thing, I asked about this at the White House COVID briefing this week. And Jeff Zients, the sort of COVID czar uh, for the administration, was clearly prepared for a question along these lines because of your reporting and the reporting out there from BioCentury and others that morning. Um, And he pointed out that Janet Woodcock is among the health officials who signed on to this statement about the need for boosters and their planned availability September 20th with the, you know, sort of caveat side note, as long as the FDA signs off on it. Um, What does it signal that Janet Woodcock is kind of out there uh, putting her name on something that perhaps is really frustrating the career staff under her at the agency. Well, w- what I can say is this has really reignited this uh, this sentiment in the public that I've been sort of yelling about for the last eight months, which is that we don't have a permanent commissioner at the FDA during a pandemic. And frankly, the way I look at this is it's sort of like any good manager or good editor, when a when a directive comes down from the top that might seem unreasonable, uh, a not so great manager will just tell their people, this is the breaks, you got to get it done and say, I support this. A good manager will say, my people say this is impossible. They will run interference and they will try to make sure that things are okay for the people below them. Uh, so it's it's hard to understand exactly why Dr. Woodcock has signed on to this idea uh, and is supporting it. 
But it's pretty clear that it's igniting some tensions between her and the lower level staff at the FDA. And Nick, do you feel like this raises that that specter of sort of politics intruding on science? Uh, you know, we talked about this a little bit before, but, you know, we we, we had this debate and argument uh, during the Trump administration with, uh, with, you know, with the last full time FDA commissioner, Stephen Hahn, uh, whether or not Stephen Hahn was letting politics intrude and and pressuring FDA staff under him to, to do things that the, the White House wanted wanted done. I mean, are we seeing evidence of that here? So there are definitely some similarities that you already mentioned. There are some differences here too, though, to be honest. I mean, the biggest, I think, is the fact that during the Trump administration, we saw these efforts to sugarcoat or even hide the the truth about COVID-19. I mean, the great reporting from Dan Diamond at the Washington Post about efforts to edit CDC studies, for example, stands out as sort of the sort of egregious political appearance that isn't happening now. But it's totally fair that there is, again, this is a sign of the FDA commissioner really struggling to navigate politics in Washington. I mean, I think it's no surprise why every FDA commissioner over the last few decades has called for the FDA to be an independent agency. I mean, everyone struggles with this. So speaking of FDA adjacent people who may be uh, unhappy nowadays, they have scheduled, I believe, for September 17th, another meeting of the independent advisors who advise the FDA on vaccines, people who've become like members of our family. We've seen them so often this past year and a half or so. That seems similarly awkward with respect to timing because of the White House, because as we've mentioned, there is this uh, declaration that boosters will be available just days after that. And this is the meeting in which these people are supposed to take a hard look at the data underlying it. What can we expect as as that moves forward? I mean, we've seen so much anger in the neuroscience division of the uh, independent advisors to Adjuhelm, which is a separate issue, but it does kind of bundle up a little bit with the state of the FDA right now. We've talked about how, you know, people, career staff are in many cases frustrated. What do we know about, you know, how all this might affect those those independent advisors that the agency relies on? I think the number one thing we can expect is that it will be a little awkward. Uh, and I mean, the thing that's going to be the most interesting, and I, I don't necessarily predict this will happen, but if that vote in a parallel universe went the wrong way, it, it would be interesting to see what the FDA did because they would be just three days away from supposedly rolling out boosters. And if their advisors say, we don't think boosters are needed right now, uh, or there's something in the data that they are concerned about, that would lead to a really crazy situation. I mean, this is just, it's really a high wire act what they're facing here in terms of trying to get this rolled out by September 20th. I mean, the deadlines are just really going to create some interesting scenarios for the FDA. It'll be interesting to to hear what uh, Marion Gruber and, and Phil Krause might say at that meeting. I mean, they're still going to be at the agency. They're not expected to leave uh, leave the agency until later this fall. So presumably they're going to be at that meeting and and have something to say about the boosters. Yeah, Adam, the interesting thing is that no matter what, no matter how people, angry civil servants seem to be at the FDA, uh, they don't typically speak out of line. So I don't think we're going to be watching an Aaron Sorkin film play out live, but it'll certainly be interesting to see, uh, you know, how how good of soldiers they are as, as they uh, as they deal with that meeting. Yeah, you mean no walking and talking? It's so disappointing. <laughs> exactly. Well, what you said also kind of has a parallel to what happened with aducanumab. I mean, if the VERPAC, the advisory committee, goes against this idea, but the FDA overrules it and, and votes for it anyway, I mean, that just sort of seems to like contribute to the problems the FDA is having right now with trust. And that 
sort of segues us into the last thing we wanted to ask you about, which is uh, this new reporting from Rachel Kors um, saying that uh, Congress has requested documents from the FDA about that aducanumab, the, the Biogen Alzheimer's drug decision. How much do you think this problem, uh, the, the whole perception around that drug, contributed to Janet Woodcock getting out of the running as FDA commissioner? And, and is she really officially out of the running? I mean, it certainly doesn't help is the is the quick answer to that. I mean, no, no person that is campa- campaigning for a job wants there to be uh, a big controversy as they're campaigning for that job. To the question of whether Janet Woodcock is officially out of the running, it still depends on who you ask. Um, people, some people still insist that she is still in the running, that she is not uh, fully out. There are others that say there is absolutely no way that she will be uh, named commissioner. What this tells me, frankly, is that no one really knows. I mean, when you have both, when you have people telling both different sides of the story and they are so far apart, it tells me that probably no one has actually gotten good indications from the White House on what is going on. So as it has been every time that we've chatted over the last few months, it still seems like no one knows what the heck is going on with the FDA commissioner and what the future for Janet Woodcock holds. Nick, thanks for joining us. Of course. Thanks for having me. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and your feelings about pumpkin spice season. <laughs> you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week. Wait, Damien, I don't know where you come down on pumpkin spice. I feel kind of agnostic. Damien drinks black coffee and bourbon without ice. He's a man's man.